I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. Those who made it through the snow, isn't it great to be worshiping together? No. If you're having to watch from home, we are so glad that you're with us too. You know, we talk with urgency at North Sub about discipleship, which is the forming of followers of Jesus who are forever becoming more like him. The urgency in our call to discipleship comes partly from the fact that the world outside these doors is working just as hard to disciple us as the church is. The ads we see, the media we take in, the entertainment we consume, the materials we read, it's nonstop. And none of it is value neutral. There is a gospel, so to speak, being held out for us, even outside these doors. The world is constantly whispering in our ear, this, this right here, this is the good life. Don't you want it? That's why we're so relentless here at North Sub, maybe borderline annoying, about encouraging you to disciple somebody and to get discipled. As you've heard us say, 75 minutes on a Sunday morning is simply not enough to counter all of the deformation or malformation taking place for all the other 6,600 waking minutes in the week. We need to come alongside each other to help each other grow into the image of Christ. And there are three individuals in our church whom we particularly want to recognize this morning for having done just that, for sacrificing countless hundreds of hours of their time over many years to come alongside the young people of our church, our junior high and high school students, and to walk with them toward Jesus. So Zach Byer, Sarah Nonemacher, would you guys come up to the stage, please? Stephanie Nielsen, we wanted to honor her as a third person here, uh, but she unexpectedly had to quarantine there at the end, so she's watching from online. Stephanie, we are honoring you as well here. Good morning, everyone. So um, when I arrived, about a year ago, I had to take on, um, or had a team that uh, helped us take on this, this huge task on such short notice. Um, Stephanie, who's unable to be here, and Zach and Sarah are just three members of the team that had been holding down the fort, so to speak, and uh, did so with great enthusiasm and, and great humility. Uh, these team members saw were cared for and taught the Word of God. Stephanie, for about 10 years, Uh, Zach for about five and a half years, Sarah for about seven years. And two of those years, um, they did so while in the middle of a pandemic, which saw many youth groups across the country not only changed, but many also completely gone. Um, I have heard of youth groups that have not survived Zoom fatigue, and uh, these leaders made it happen and then some. Uh, They helped me tremendously when I arrived. Zach's always ready to help jump in for an illustration or uh, prepare a game or lead small group discussions uh, and discipling our students. Sarah uh, is always around to help with uh, connecting with students. She has such a heart and passion for teens and uh, preparing lessons for us. And Stephanie, I don't even know where to begin. She event plans. She gives lessons, makes devos, makes graphics. She does it all. Uh, I don't know if Many of you know what Spy Wars is, but I can't 
quite give you the, the entire picture, and it would be impossible for me to have gotten the whole picture if it weren't for the leaders helping me do that in our first year. Our youth group would not be what it is today without the work and prayer and godly example of these leaders. They're passionate, determined, and gentle in spirit. And we don't typically offer gifts for volunteer leaders uh, of ministries within the church, but when a leader dedicates this much time, resource, energy, and prayer into a ministry, uh, we want to recognize their work through the Lord. So um, we do have a small token of appreciation for both of you just to say thank you for years of service. Um, we've been blessed by their ministry, and we want to offer our thanks to you and to God for your work and dedication. Let's give them a hand. Pray for our leaders. Heavenly Father, um, we are so grateful for the ways in which you've blessed North Sub and for the ways in which you've blessed these uh, leaders in the lives of not only our youth, but those around them, being a salt and light to those that, um, that they're around. Lord, you've blessed them in so many ways, and you've blessed us through them, and we give you all the praise, honor, and glory for that. Lord, uh, thank you for shining your light in and through these leaders so that they might be changed and um, so that they might shed light to others and recognize an example your glory. Uh, may they, uh, their work have glorified you and may they continue to, to do so as you bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's a long overdue well done for some faithful people who have answered the Lord's call. Make sure you pass on your appreciation to them and to Stephanie when you see her too. May God raise up more Zachs, more Sarahs, more Stephanies, even maybe from those present here today. Let's now turn to the word. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Some people live their lives without ever really taking the time to look in the mirror and honestly assess what they see there. I'm not actually talking about looking in the mirror physically, though I suppose there are folks in that camp too, but I am talking about morally, character-wise, spiritually. Like, how am I really doing? Some people rarely, if ever, ask that question of themselves. And you can understand why they don't. It's scary to hand God the flashlight, so to speak, and to say, okay, God, go for it. Shine it around in all the darkest corners of my heart and bring out into the open what's there so I can really see it. I'm ready. Sort of like that Psalm 139 said. Are any of us confident that that would be a positive experience? Like, I know that I do not want a transcript passed around this room of what my thoughts were even in the few hours of this morning before getting here. Where some of us go then is, I don't want to think about it. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm sure other people are worse. God will sort it out. Keep the flashlight off. 
I don't need to see what's really going on in there. Nothing good is likely to come from looking in the mirror, we say. That approach, you may remember, is one of the ditches, so to speak, that we are addressing in this series. We laid it out a couple weeks ago. There are two ditches, and we have an enemy who's equally happy to scheme us into either one. Over here is the ditch of unhealthy introspection, constant self-evaluation, followed by beating ourselves up. We looked at a passage two weeks ago that warned us against falling into this ditch by reminding us that our assurance before God is based on the work of Christ, not based on anything inside of ourselves. But over here in this other ditch is this second issue, uh, the ditch addressed by today's text, presumption. And in this ditch, I I never take the time to evaluate myself because I'm probably fine. Blood of Jesus, right? So no need to look in the mirror. For the person in this ditch, today's passage is perhaps a challenging one. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13? 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You've got Bibles in the chair back in front of you. You're going to want to open those up and follow along. As you're turning there, I'm going to provide a little background. Because in order to understand this text, we need to understand what's been going on in the previous few chapters of this letter. Paul is writing this letter to Christians in the city of Corinth. And at least some of the people Paul's writing to seemingly are falling into this ditch of presumption over here. At least they're close to falling into this ditch. Yet, astoundingly, after being riled up by some bad characters maybe, they have sent correspondence to Paul demanding that he, Paul, the one who had led them to faith, produce his credentials. What makes you qualified, Paul, they say. So as Paul receives this demand and sits down to pen the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians, and especially 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, he's like, okay, let me get this straight. You want proof that I have passed the test when you yourselves haven't looked in the mirror to see if you've passed the test. In this way, I think the the demand of the Corinthians illustrates this principle that generally people don't love it when you ask them to do something that they aren't willing to do themselves. And maybe some politicians, both sides of the aisle have learned this during the pandemic, right? Not trying to take any cheap shots here, but we remember hearing, don't we? No haircuts, hair salons are closed until further notice, except I'm going to sneak into one privately and get my haircut. That didn't make people happy. The one that amazed me most, though, was the Texas mayor, you might remember this one, who released a please stay at home video from a resort in Mexico where he was on vacation. Uh, That was a bold, bold risk. Didn't pay off. Generally, people don't love it when you ask them to do something that you haven't done yourself. And we have something like that going on here. Paul says, what you're asking of me, I I need to turn around and ask of you. You, You've asked if I've passed the test. So I've laid out my self-examination over the past couple chapters. But let me ask you this, Corinthians, have you examined yourself to see if you passed the test? See if that background helps make sense of these verses that we're going to read. Please follow along as I read verses 5 through 10 of 2 Corinthians 13. Paul writing, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. 
Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. But we pray to God that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. For we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray that you become fully mature. This is why I'm writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Reading Paul say, I I might have to deal harshly with you. Yikes, right? But if we were to scan back a few verses, and if you just take a quick peek in your Bible a few verses before this one, you'll see that that's not an offhand comment that comes out of nowhere here. He's been saying, hey, it looks like I might have to come back to Corinth and deal with you harshly. If I do come back, make sure, I want to make sure you know I won't be lenient. That's verse 2. If you really still need proof that I'm legit, you're going to see proof, and you're going to see power, the sort of display of spiritual power that might cause you discomfort. That's where he is when he gets to verse 4. In light of that, let's just make sure, just for a second, let's look back through this passage and make sure that we're tracing the flow of the argument. I'm going to paraphrase the whole paragraph that we just read for clarity. Paul's effectively saying, hey, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And as you're testing yourselves, we expect that you'll realize that we, Paul and friends, have passed the test too. But if you end up passing the test, Corinthians, it might look like we then failed the test because then we won't need to follow through on all the things we just said about dealing harshly with you. That's okay. Better for us to look like we fail than for you to actually fail. That's what he's saying in verse 7. But whatever the outcome, whether I come down hard on you and perceive to be weak, I'll do whatever I do for the sake of the truth. Verse 8. I'm aiming for your full maturity, after all. Verse 9, I really hope you respond well so that I don't have to be harsh. Verse 10. I hope that makes, helps make a little sense of the flow of the passage here and what he's getting at. Um, here's how I want to dig into this passage a little deeper this morning. There's a word that keeps getting repeated over and over again in this passage. You notice what it is? I think I heard it. Test, you also, but yeah, test, right? That's a unique one, right? In the Greek that this is written in, there's actually five of them, five instances of this testing language. So we'll ask a series of questions this morning about the sort of test that Paul has in mind here. We'll ask who takes the test, what's the content of the test, what's the goal of the test-taking process, and what's the expected outcome of this particular test in 2 Corinthians 13. So first, who takes the test? Who takes the test? I talked to somebody this week who, believe it or not, has not yet taken a COVID test. In almost two full years of pandemic, never had a reason to take one. I was super impressed by that. I think I've had one of those things shoved up in my brain like 30 times in the past two years. So what about the tests that Paul is discussing here in verse 5? Who's supposed to take it? Take a look there with me. See if you can discern. Is it a subset of the Corinthian church, a particular group within the church that Paul thinks should take the test? Like, 
Like maybe it's the, only the symptomatic people, so to speak, who need to take the test, spiritually speaking, the ones who are showing evidence that there's something wrong. Is that the case? It doesn't seem like it, right? It seems to be a general call. Everyone receiving Paul's letter would do well to test themselves, to see if they're in the faith. In fact, Paul doesn't believe himself to be above such testing. He spent a good portion of the past three chapters sharing a report of his own self-examination, the evidence that he truly is in the faith. And you know, many other scriptures also point us in the same direction, one way or the other, to verify that we are actually in the faith. Just two examples, 1 John 1, or 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is how we know we are in him. Right there, it sets it up for self-examination language. Like, look, look at yourself, see if this is true of you, and then you'll know if you're in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. And then in the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Clearly, the intended takeaway is for Jesus' listeners to ask themselves, am I one of the ones who merely say, Lord, Lord, or am I one of the other ones who does the will of the Father? Self-examination. So if this sort of self-examination is for everyone, when was the last time you examined yourself? Have you ever taken the time to do it? Or maybe you've just assumed that because you're at church this morning, you and God are good. Remember, the Corinthians were at church too. That's where they would have heard this letter read in a church service. Nevertheless, these churched people, professing Christians, are called by Paul to examine themselves. Is God's Spirit prompting you to do the same this morning? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Second question, what's the content of the test? What's the content? If we don't get this question right, after all, we could zealously test ourselves only to find that we were testing ourselves on the wrong material. Like we studied the wrong textbook chapter the night before the test. The content of the test seems to be related to three sub-questions that I can find in these verses. Uh, are you in the faith? Is Christ in you? And are you doing right or wrong? Are you in the faith, verse 5? Is Christ in you, verse 5? Or are you, and, and are you doing right or wrong, verse 7? Take a quick peek with me. Are you in the faith? Test yourselves to see what? What are we trying to see? Whether you're in the faith. So let's get straight to it. Are you in the faith? Commentators seem to generally agree that to be in the faith in this context means for one's conduct to match their solid doctrines. It's being true to the faith and behavior, not just intellect, in other words. So does your pattern of conduct match the doctrine that you profess? Does mine? Second question, is Christ in you? It says there in verse 5, Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test, right? So part of passing the test is that Jesus Christ is in you. Is Jesus Christ in you? After all, it's possible to be a really, really morally upright person whose ethics are an exemplary match for the ethical teachings of Christianity. Yet, you don't have Jesus Christ in you. If that's you, not even all your morality has allowed you to pass the test. To be in the faith includes having Jesus Christ in you, his life ransoming you, paying for you, and empowering you to grow. 
So have you yet allowed Jesus Christ to enter in? Third, are you doing right or wrong? See that in verse 7 there, the right and wrong language? Passing the test is related, seemingly, in some way to doing what's right and not doing what's wrong. That sounds a lot like Jesus again, doesn't it? With his only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So if we said yes to the first two questions about being in the faith and Christ being in us, do our patterns of action verify those first two claims? So the content of the test we're called to take is wrapped up, I think, in these three questions, and it's worth our taking time to reflect on what we'd answer to the same three questions. We'll have a chance to do so in life groups this week. Third, what's the goal of the test-taking process? Like, by taking the test, what do we hope to gain? While this is implied, I think, in the language about knowing that Christ is in you, I think part of what we hope to gain from the test has to be the confidence that we do, in fact, belong to Christ and are, in fact, headed for an eternity with him. In other words, part of the goal is assurance. It's kind of like maybe the person who uh, thinks of herself as a genius. She believes her intellect is genius level. Well, there's a test you can take, a Mensa test, if you've heard of that. And if she truly is a genius, taking the Mensa test and seeing her results will bolster her confidence in that fact. It's the same way, I think, if we're testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Surely that's part of the intended outcome that Paul envisions in verse 5, that we'll look back on what we've discovered through a completed test and we'll say, yes, Christ is in me. I am in the faith. That's assurance. But we're given one more goal here of the test-taking process, and that's in verse 9, full maturity. You see that there? In verse 9, we also pray that you become fully mature. Somehow, by taking this test, Paul hopes for more than just a mere assessment to take place. Paul hopes that by examining themselves, the Corinthians are actually propelled forwards toward full maturity. That's a little strange, isn't it? I I feel like it's strange. Because whether it's an academic test or a medical test or an athletic test that we engage in, aren't the results limited to telling us where we stand right now, ordinarily? Like, to use one example, how could merely taking a math test make me better at math? Doesn't it just tell me how good I already am at math? But maybe that's a good analogy because... While the mere taking of a math test probably can't make you better at math, taking a math test and reflecting on the results can make you better at math. Like, what if instead of looking at your grade and then throwing the test in the trash immediately, you intently studied the questions you got wrong, spent time with the teacher to figure out why you got those questions wrong, then worked some similar practice problems to bolster your ability in the area of deficiency. If you did that, you'd almost certainly get better at math, right? I think that's something like what Paul may have in mind here. It's not the mere taking of the test, the mere asking of the questions, am I in the faith? Is Christ in me? Am I doing right? It's not the mere asking of those questions that makes me more mature. It's that when I ask those questions, I tend to notice areas in my life in which I've gotten a bit off track. Like I may say something like this. I may say, I do believe I'm in the faith on further reflection. 
I, I do believe Christ is in me. I do see a pattern of doing right in my life, increasingly so. But there is this exception, this pesky departure from the way of Christ in this particular area of my life. I see it now. So, you know what? By God's grace, and maybe with the help of my brothers and sisters in the faith, I'm going to put that sinful pattern to death by leaning into the gospel like I've never leaned into the gospel before, like embracing the fact that Jesus died in my place and rose again from the dead to free me not only from the effects of this sin that I'm stuck in, but from the sin itself. And so by God's grace, may I part ways with that sin and return to the way of Christ. If I go through that journey, not stopping with the mere taking of the test, and viewing of my results, but rather actually doing something about areas of deficiency. Now the test has become something that doesn't just measure my maturity, but that actually propels me forward toward full maturity. So assurance and full maturity are the two goals, I think, of the test-taking process according to these verses. Now, these first three questions that we asked are directly applicable to our own tests. The final question that I'm asking is particularly about this test right here in 2 Corinthians 13 that the, Paul calls on the Corinthians to take, because I think we can glean something from asking it. Namely, what's the expected outcome of this particular test that Paul asks them to engage in? Does, in other words, does Paul expect the Corinthians to pass or fail? Look back at the passage. Can you tell if he expects them to pass or fail? It seems to me that Paul fully expects the Corinthian church as a whole to pass this test. He has every hope that the outcome of the test-taking process will be positive for them, will be encouraging for them in the end. All right, look at verse 5 again. It's not a 50-50, hey, hope you pass. What is it? It's, do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, of course, he does leave the door open that some of them will fail the test, unless you fail the test. But nowhere on Paul's radar seems to be a possibility of widespread collective failure of this test, right? Look at verse 9, for example. Paul envisions the post-test situation, and he envisions them, him looking weak, but the Corinthians being shown to be strong. Of course, the only way for them to come out looking strong is if they pass the test, right? Or verse 10, he seems hopeful that this letter will have such an effect that growth will have happened before he arrives, and he won't have to be harsh with them in person. If we were to peek ahead just a verse to verse 11, we'd see that he calls them brothers and sisters, which would be odd if he's not sure if they really are his brothers and sisters, right? To summarize, this isn't just a coin flip for Paul as he's laying this out. Like, I hope these people are really Christians, but who knows? He's confident, actually, that despite maybe a few exceptions, they mostly are and will respond accordingly and grow as a result of what he's writing to them. After all, in this particular case, it's hard to overestimate how much his credentials and theirs are tied together. In other words, if they fail the test, Paul thinks that he fails the test by extension. Here's how he puts it earlier in the same letter. He says, do we need like some letters or recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter, delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, Paul says, if we are fakes, how do you explain what's happened in your lives as a result of the gospel that we brought to you? 
Your own story is evidence that what we brought you is the real deal, the real gospel. That's the logic that undergirds verse 6 of our own text today. Do you, do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? And I hope you recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Like as they look in the mirror and say, oh yeah, we do pass the test. Praise God. That should make them say, wait, if Paul's gospel really did what it was supposed to do, it situated us in the faith with Christ living in us, with lives that are now characterized by doing good, then maybe his gospel's legit after all even though it's maybe not as flashy, not as polished as some of these other teachers that we've encountered since Paul left. So I don't know, maybe that's just one more reason for us to examine ourselves. That our doing so can provide some extra confirmation or validation of the faithful ones who went before us and led us to the faith. Like speaking very practically, after we test ourselves and find an encouraging outcome, what if we reached out to those who poured into us maybe years ago, and, and thank them for their investment in us. You never know, they could be going through a difficult time, and the word of affirmation that we offer could be what God uses today to assure them that they still pass the test. In any case, I want to make sure we didn't miss here that in 2 Corinthians 13, with, as is the case in almost every call to self-examination in the Bible, the expected outcome isn't, oh no, I'm terrible. The expected outcome is, I'm so glad I went through that uncomfortable testing process because now on the other side of it, I'm more deeply assured of my salvation than ever before. Our big idea today is this, in pursuit of full maturity, let's examine ourselves. In pursuit of full maturity, let's examine ourselves. This very week, we're going to be given a concrete chance to do just that. You've heard by now about this annual checkup. It was written by the pastors, elders, women's leadership team with input from the staff. This Thursday, you will receive a link, uh, an email with a link to that checkup and uh, with a PIN number that's yours for purposes of confidentiality. The link will take you to this series of multiple choice questions, 33 of them, three to correspond with each of the 11 marks of a disciple that we've identified over the past few years as a church. Now, I want to over-communicate, so thanks for bearing with me, about what this is and what this isn't, because I'd hate for anybody to be confused or bothered by this checkup uh, that's coming out. So a few questions about the quantitative nature of this survey. First, if my score isn't good, what does that mean for me? First, I'd respond, well, what's a good score? I don't know what a good score is on this. Because uh, the whole point of this isn't to look at a snapshot of where you are now, but rather to take this next year also and compare to this year and see how you've grown over the course of the year. This is a baseline, in other words. So there's no way to fail this test. Good news. Second, who's going to know what I scored? Who's going to see my scores? Answer, not your life group leader, your growth group leader, not the elders, not the pastors. All we will see is a conglomerate of all the scores attached to pin numbers that we'll use to measure spiritual growth of the church as a whole year over year. As for your individual results, Google will just send those to you automatically when you press submit on the checkup. Um, we do want to be totally upfront, though, though, so there are no surprises. We'd hate for anybody to feel like we misled on anything. So two things. One... While we won't know your scores, we will know if you've taken it or not, based on which PIN numbers have a result logged and which ones don't, right? And obviously nothing is mandatory, 
but we are going to try our best to reach out and persuade you to complete this checkup if you haven't taken it in a week or two. For your sake and for the sake of getting as full a picture as possible of spiritual growth taking place in the life of our church. So thanks for uh, humoring us on that. Second clarification is that next year at this time, if you can picture when you take this for a second time, same set of questions, one of our admins may have to manually go to the data bank, copy and paste the two sets of scores associated with your PIN number and email them to you so that you can compare year over year, if that makes sense. That's a small theoretical limitation to the almost absolute confidentiality that we can guarantee on this. If you have any concerns about that, please do let us know. We want to hear that. But I can say that I have personally the utmost confidence in our administrative staff in their integrity, in copying and pasting my own year-over-year data without looking at it, just as they handle and send you and me our year-end giving statements with the utmost confidentiality. Same category in my mind. So, so that's what's coming later this week, Thursday. It's a self-examination tool for you and an us-examination tool for the church. If you're freaked out by any aspect of it, that's okay. Reach out and let's talk it through. Now, if our passage today had dealt with almost any other topic, I'd be happy at this point just to leave it here and wrap up. But sometimes on some topics, there are two things that need to be said to two different kinds of people. So, for example, you ever read these two back-to-back proverbs? Don't answer a, cool, a fool according to his foolishness, or you'd be like him yourself. Very next verse. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. Wait, so which is it? Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or don't? And the answer, of course, is yes. In other words, the author isn't confused. He put them in back-to-back verses so that we'd know he wasn't confused. This is a wisdom issue. One person in one situation needs to be told verse 4. Another person in another situation needs to be told verse 5. It's the same with this business of self-examination that we're engaged in during this sermon series. Someone here this morning needs to hear, quit freaking out about whether you're in the faith and whether your life is good enough. Trust the blood of Jesus. The person over here in this ditch needs to hear that this morning. Somebody else here this morning, though, needs to hear, quit presuming that the blood of Jesus has covered your sins when your walk presently looks nothing like how Jesus walked. Two ditches, right? Both are real. Both need to be warned against. Today's passage, unlike the one two weeks ago that did the opposite, performs mostly the latter function, correcting those in this ditch, right? Quit presuming. And so that's where we've leaned in today. But I worry about just leaving it like that, leaving you all like that this morning, because many of you I know are like me over in this ditch over here, right? And I'm scared to death of the real danger that the call to examine ourselves will send somebody further into this ditch instead of helping them out of it. So before we wrap up, I want to give you a gift, the gift of one of the most helpful, practical tools that I've come across on this matter of self-examination. Life-changing for me. It's from Greg Gilbert in his book, Assured. He says, yes, examine yourself, of course, 2 Corinthians 13, but as you're examining yourself, don't make these six mistakes. And as I read this for the first time just a couple months ago, I was like, oh, this is my problem. I make almost every one of these six mistakes, like daily. 
Okay, so you ready? So I've reworded these a little from Greg Gilbert uh, to make them easier to understand, but it's basically just lifted from him. Take quick notes, or better yet, just buy the book. Here are the mistakes. Number one, examine yourself too narrowly. First mistake, examine yourself too narrowly. This is when we zero in on just a splotch of paint on the canvas, that one recurring sin, instead of looking at what's the dominant color on the canvas of our lives. You know, even the healthiest apple tree has at least one rotten apple, right? But we fundamentally misassess the tree if we stand there right in front of that one apple with our eyes six inches away from it, judging the whole tree by that one. How often do I do that? Second mistake, examine yourself by comparing your life with others. This is when we take our weak points and we hold them up against other Christians who happen to be exemplary in that same area. But when does Scripture call us to do that? Younger siblings are less mature than their older siblings, but your younger children are no less your children because they're less mature. Don't compare with others. Third, uh, third mistake, examine your past instead of your present. Examine your past instead of your present. This is when we start entertaining the enemy's voice, saying, how could a real Christian have done something as heinous as what you've done? Right? But the author of today's text, remember, was rounding Christians up to be imprisoned or killed before he met Christ. He says he's the worst of sinners. And when he brings up the past of his audiences, it's never to shame them, not, not on their past, but to urge them to rejoice in forgiveness and transformation that they've experienced in Christ. Fourth mistake, examine yourself too frequently. Examine yourself too frequently. This is when we become obsessive. When every moment of the day becomes a data point about whether I'm in the faith or not, right? We become then like the person who weighs themselves on a scale dozens of times a day, maybe even after every meal. The problem with that isn't that body weight can't be an indicator of something important health-wise. The problem is that we keep, if we keep weighing ourselves every few minutes, I think Greg Gilbert uh, says it well. He says, not only would that show an unhealthy psychological obsession with what is finally only one of many indicators of health, but it would also fail to give an accurate or useful measure of the person's health at all. Even worse, the constant fluctuation up and down, encouragement and discouragement would likely leave the person incapable of taking the steps that would lead to true health. What's important is not how, is, is how a person's weight fluctuates over a few weeks or even a few months, not a few minutes or hours. Does that describe you spiritually? If so, please stop examining yourself so frequently. Take your eyes off of getting an A-plus in this moment and put your eyes on Christ's work. Fifth mistake, do the work of self-examination alone. Do the work of self-examination alone. It's better and safer to do this self-examination together with a friend in your growth group, in your life group. The brothers and sisters who come alongside you can do one of two things. They can either point out some rotten fruit that you were missing or can help you zoom out to see, yeah, that one fruit may be rotten, but this tree of your life is overall quite healthy. Don't forget that. Don't miss it. And by the way, that's just one more shortcoming of online church, right? One more reason we're not being shy about pestering you to get here in the presence of other believers, if you can. We need each other to do this work of self-examination well. Sixth mistake, let your obedience become the primary source of your insurance. 
We'd let our obedience become the primary source of our assurance. This is when we say either, my life is way more good than bad, so I must be saved. Or, I'm noticing more sin than ever, so I must not be saved. We're so prone to go there because we are bent toward a desire to save ourselves. So in my quest to contribute something to my salvation, even the fruit of the Spirit become opportunities for me to hope that I can earn God's favor. Ah, yes, I've got love, joy, peace, so I'm good with God. We got to remember the distinction that we emphasized two weeks ago, that there's an accelerator that propels the car forward, and there's a speedometer that merely confirms that the car is moving forward. We can't confuse the two. The accelerator, the driving source of our assurance is the blood of Christ and the promises of God. That's what we lean into. That's what we step on when we want to be assured more. The inward look at our lives and actions, that's only ever meant to be the speedometer. It's helpful in confirming, but it's not fundamentally where we are meant to go for our assurance. If lacking assurance, we go first and foremost to the blood and to the promises. We see then that there are two mistakes to be made with this fourth source of assurance, either of which puts us in a ditch. Some people ignore or neglect this confirming source of assurance as though it's unimportant, and that puts them in the ditch of presumption. Others of us elevate this confirming source of assurance as though it's the driving source of our assurance, which puts us in the ditch of unhealthy introspection. Let's continue, friends, seeking out a life lived on this path of true assurance. On this path is sober assessment, yes, but blessed assurance. Deeper assurance than the presumption that's found over here, and more steady assurance than the introspection that's found over here. It's an assurance that's based primarily on the blood and the promises and is only secondarily confirmed by examining our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We can't praise you enough that our salvation doesn't ride on us. That we didn't have to earn your favor in the first place with our good deeds. And that you didn't just save us and then put the matter into our hands. Remaining in the faith being then up to us. We never would have made it, God. We'd never be able to be faithful enough. And so we praise you that we can be assured based on the blood and on your promises that you will not lose any that were given to you and that you won't let one of your children fall away. Yet, we want to be obedient to your call to test ourselves, to examine ourselves. And so as we do so, help us to be a church that does so in a healthy way. Help me to be a person who does so in a healthier way than I have done it in the past. In a way that isn't obsessive, uh, in a way that doesn't put too much weight on my own actions, in a way that isn't done in isolation, uh, but in a way that you use to sharpen and to push toward maturity and to confirm what I already know from the blood and the promises that I and that we in this congregation belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we spend 30 seconds or so right now before we close with one more song uh, 30 more seconds of silent reflection, letting God's Spirit do that work of shining that flashlight 
If you didn't have time to during the sermon, a lot was coming at you. Let's let God's spirit shine that flashlight around in those dark corners of our hearts and let's confess to him silently what we see there.